Mark chapter 2, we'll read the entire text, uh, uh, 1 through 13, but we're going to focus on 5 through 13 this morning, on the authority of the Son of God, the authority of the Son of God. When he, Jesus, had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room and not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was laying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up immediately and picked up his pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Father, the church is made up of forgiven people. If we are saved, then we are part of the church. And if we're part of the church, we're forgiven people because we're saved. And so salvation, forgiveness, these things are dear to us, Lord. Without them, we would have no relationship with you. We would have no desire for you. The world would just merely carry us away and prepare us for eternal death. But you have forgiven our sins through Jesus Christ alone. That thought, that truth, that testimony stores our hearts in all that we do. Whether we are here in this building singing or preaching or out among the world, that thought captures us daily. We are forgiven. And this is the message, Lord, you have commanded us to give, that Christ forgives sins. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can do that once again this morning, but we pray that our, our proclamation of Christ's forgiveness will not just be in this building, but yet Monday and Tuesday and throughout the week, Lord, may our tongues be free to proclaim your forgiveness. We thank you for the gathering of this church, Lord. We thank you that you build the church. We don't. We thank you that you call people to this assembly to gather, to be a part of it, to be a family here. We pray that you would continue to use us, Lord, that we would be found faithful, that we would be a tool you would use, you would constantly pick up to bring about your will, Lord. Father, we think of those who have suffered this last weeks in, in 
and some for many, many years, Lord. Lord, they think of the Taylor family, Lord, as they said goodbye to their beloved husband and father. And we pray for them, Lord. We thank you for Karen's faithfulness as she cared for Greg in a very debilitating state for so long. Bless her, Lord. Bless that family. Strengthen them, Lord. Father, we thank you for Bonnie Huguenin, Lord, who watched her husband depart this last week, Lord. And we thank you for her faithfulness and their family, Lord. And we pray you would minister to her and strengthen her through these times, Lord. And Father, all those others that have gone through difficulties lately, whether it's some kind of illness that they have suffered, some kind of treatment, or those who have lost loved ones that aren't maybe belonging to this church, Lord. We pray that your loving arms, your care would wrap around them, Lord. They would know that you are the great comforter and they would run into your arms, Lord. Father, we as their family members, may we comfort them and love on them and make sure they know that we are praying for them and are there to serve them, Lord. Father, there are others today who are not able, not strong enough to come today. They are watching maybe at home or in a home somewhere, and we pray for them as well, Lord. Father, we all want to finish well, Lord, and we pray that you would strengthen all of us to run through the tape. Father, many are traveling of our church, are on vacations, enjoying this beautiful summertime. Please be with them. Keep them safe, Lord. Bring them back to us, Lord. We thank you for this morning, Lord, as we proclaim your truths now. In Jesus' name, amen. As most of you know, Gene and I uh, took off for a week or so just to catch some time or catch our breath a little bit after a busy year of ministry, and we went up to visit our second-born son who's in Richmond, Virginia, uh, and I, I love history. Um, I love history with a biblical worldview, <laughs> uh, so I sometimes drive my family crazy as I look at things and events. I'm always thinking, okay, how does that square with the scriptures? And uh, so we, <laughs> we're in Richmond, Virginia, so let's go see some Civil War stuff. Uh, uh, really enjoyed some of the museums up there, um, and it enjoyed just walking through those and thinking about the plan of God and the sinfulness of man and, and how God in His great sovereignty controls all those things. He's, he's not responsible for sin, and yet He has His hands on all that stuff as it goes around it. What, what a terrible, terrible war that was. Um, so many uh, places we visited spoke of the numbers of these young men who died um, here on our, on our own soil. And, and you saw the great sinfulness, hatred that came out, statements about family members and, and uh, race and diversity and all that stuff that would come out of that. And you thought, Lord, this is how far man can go. Sin, you just never can stop enough to think of the power of sin, what it can do, how it can destroy. We made our way eventually to um, what they called the White House. It was gray, but it was the White House where Jefferson Davis um, was the president of the Confederate. And we went to a tour there, and that was extremely interesting to kind of see uh, that. We're, remember, we're California people, so we're westward movement. We're like 1860s forward. So this is all, this is fun to get back here and learn all this stuff and see these things. Um, but one of the things that stuck out in, the, in that tour, and this is what really grabbed me about the sinfulness of man, how, how great sin can be, was just two days after the Union had pushed into um, uh, Richmond, 
and pushed the Confederates out. Abraham Lincoln showed up with his son, Tad, who was 12. Got off a train, walked through the city, rode through the city with just a few sailors guarding him in a very, very volatile area. Eventually um, made his way through the burned out city because the city got burned on the, uh, on, as the Confederates left. He made himself to the White House and there he was meeting with Union uh, officers and getting debriefed on everything. And he stood in this window and actually stood there in that window and he looked out over the burned out city and all the things that were going on there. Um, and, and they said it was amazing. Here he is with his son in the middle of a war zone. And he's there. And, and four days later, Lee surrenders. Ten days later, he's shot to death with his wife at a theater, enjoying some downtime. <laughs> I sat there and I said, Lord, man is so sinful, so wicked. And yet you are such a God of grace. We can be in the most volatile areas. I've traveled the world. I've been in pretty dangerous places at times, training pastors. And yet, who knows? You could be at your home <laughs> and some evil person do something um, to you. And, and, and as I thought about this text, as I never, uh, even on vacation, you're always thinking about your next text and you're just mauling over it as you think about the truths of that text. When Jesus forgives this young man, of his sins, do we really understand the depth of that? The devastating nature of sin. See, it's easy to look at Booth and his pulling of the trigger and killing Abraham Lincoln, who, who for all intents and purposes seems to be a godly man who was trying to lead the nation in a way. He was relaxing with his wife. Uh, uh, the war had been come to an end. Things were starting to settle down. It looked like maybe we were going in the right direction. And here this evil seems to happen. And it's easy to look at that and say, wow, that's bad. Or look at the stuff that's happening in the Middle East or even in our own nation where cops are being shot or, or vice versa. There, sometimes there's evil within law enforcement. And we see those things and we think, that oh, so evil. And yet, our sin, our personal sin, thoughts, uh, the intent of our heart is just as wicked as all of those things and nailed Christ to that cross just as much as any trigger that was ever pulled by someone. And so when we think about this forgiveness, this statement here where Jesus says, I forgive your sins. The magnitude of that statement for that young man. I... I Began to look at this again this week and putting my notes down. Number one, look at our first point together. The power of sin and the greatness of Christ. It, the, trying to get my mind around the way they were thinking at that time. The Jews, I mentioned this last time we were in this text. The Jews believed that sin and sickness uh, were always tied together. So if you were sick, it was because of your parents or it was because of uh, your sin, we reflected on John 9, verse 2, when the disciples saw the blind man, they asked Jesus, they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Um, that's the prevailing thought. If you have an illness, if you have cancer or somebody dies, it's because you sinned in some way, that was just a prevailing thought. 
And you know that's still true today. It's not true, but it's true in the way people think. There's often, even within Christianity, a, a bit of a corrupted thinking that we think God is out to get us. I remember being a young man just in Bible college starting to get my mind around the depth of the love of God. And I remember coming to the understanding in my dorm room that God loves me. You go, well, Scott, you should have been probably around that. No, really understanding that God loves you. Because in our, in our struggles, in our uh, humanness at times that creeps into our Christianity, we will often relate to God as we relate to other people. And we will sometimes believe that God is angry with us or mad at us, and so he puts his heavy hand upon us or does something to us out of anger or does something to us that is unfair. And so we begin to conjure up that type of thinking. I remember in that dorm room, finally, we're coming out of class of 1 John and studying just the doctrine of the love of God. And remember asking God to forgive me that I had underestimated his love for me. And that he was no longer angry with me. He was not against me. <laughs> As we sing, he is for us. But that pervasive thinking still lies sometimes, maybe with our young people, and maybe with, with you. And yet, here is our Lord. He answers the disciples. Remember this in John chapter 9, verse 3. He says, no, neither. It's so that God will be glorified. And so there are times people die, people go through sickness, people go through difficult times, because it's strictly a way that God wants to exalt himself. He just wants to bring praise to himself. He can do that because he's perfect in all he does. It's not, it's not wrong what he does. He just wants himself magnified in this area. Sometimes he does that. And then the question will often come, and I've been asked this so many times through the years, why do bad things happen to good people? See, people begin to wrestle with that. Maybe this young man here was a morally good person. We don't know how he sustained this paralyzed position. Maybe he was a good person and something bad happened to him. But that whole premise is wrong, isn't it? <laughs> Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, wait a minute. Jesus, I mean, excuse me, the Bible says, clearly Old Testament, New Testament, there are none good. <laughs> no, not one, right? So the premise is wrong. First of all, why do bad things happen to good people? That premise is wrong. We and of ourselves, without the goodness of God flooding into our life through salvation, through Jesus Christ alone, there is no good. <laughs> so uh, all that could come our way would be deserved before our sin, right? So, so we have to work our way around that. But I think furthermore, we underestimate the power of sin. The power of sin and what it has and the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you underestimate the power of sin, you will underestimate the greatness of Christ. Did you catch that? Recently, somebody said, uh, they told me, they came up to me, I think they were visiting here, and they said, our pastor doesn't teach on sin. My first thought was, you won't love Jesus enough. I don't know how you would answer that question, but that's how I answered it. Someone says, our pastor doesn't teach on sin, they're not going to love Jesus 
Because the more we teach on sin and the power of it and what it could have done, what it, where it took us, because Paul's always taking you back and said, remember this, we used to be, we used to do this. He reminds us of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And so when you look at this text, particularly verse 5 here, and seeing their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. We often maybe skip through the sins part. We go, oh, good, he's forgiven. And let's think for just a moment this morning about the power of sin. It all started in the garden, as we know, Genesis chapter 3. And just if you can imagine this word picture here, when Adam and Eve and the sin happened before they bit the fruit, it happened in their heart. At that moment when they believed Satan over God, when they rejected it, Here's what they did. They rejected the word of God. At that moment, all of mankind was sucked into the vortex of depravity. Can you see that? Can you get your mind's eye around it? The moment they rejected the word of God, they sucked the entire humanity into this vortex of depravity. And we've been dealing with that ever since. And, And... and, and, and it's easy to go, man, I'd like to get my hands on those two. <laughs> oh no, be careful. Be careful. Because our sin does the same thing today, doesn't it? You rarely get to sin where it doesn't affect someone else. If you're honest with your own personal sin of things you do, whether it's thought life, outward, you pick it up, inward, outward, whatever it was, it will affect someone else. That's what sin does. Sin is not some isolated thing that just hangs around over here. It is a cancer that gets out and spreads on all kinds of things. This is what Jesus forgave the young man of. This is what the power of sin is Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as one man sinned into the world, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So there's a federal headship of the sinning of Adam that spread onto us, and yet we at birth go astray. David says, I was conceived in sin. Psalms 58 says that the wicked go astray from birth. It isn't hard to see as you go down through the scriptures. I just picked out a few Old Testament texts. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. This is right before the flood. That every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So when Jesus forgave the paralytic, he forgave him of every intent of his heart. And he forgives you of the intent of your heart. This is a depth of our Sin, of the wickedness, the power of sin. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. This is, an, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, listen to this, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to death. Wow, that's a great description. We're talking about depravity. This is what Jesus forgave the young man for his depravity. Look with me at Mark chapter 7. Just turn over a couple of pages. We'll get to this in time. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. 
again, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious rulers of the day are plaguing the Lord Jesus Christ. They are constantly caught up with the outside. If you don't live outwardly then, and do everything perfect, then you're, then you're wicked to them. And Jesus reverses the whole thing. You know, in verse 21, he says, For, for with, from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds the evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting. Wow, that's a hard one. You can't even see that one. And wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evils proceed from within, and they defile the man. That's sin. That's what Jesus saves us from. <laughs> That's what he's forgiven you. You go, Scott, I, I didn't do all those things. You may not have, but you were fully capable of it. You and I have capabilities of sin that are beyond what you can imagine. If it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ. If it were not for his spirit who restrains us. If it was not for his forgiveness. John chapter 3 verse 19 Jesus says this. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Now listen to this. And men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That's the natural state of man. He loves darkness. He doesn't like light. He will shy away from the light and he will draw back into the darkness even when that light has salvation to it. That's our state, brothers and sisters, before salvation. That's who we are. See, this is why you preach on sin, because Christ is great, isn't he? Hey, a couple more verses. We've got to look at this a little farther. Romans chapter 8. Flip over there with me. I just want you to marvel with me together at the greatness of God's salvation. When he says he forgives sin, think about what he's forgiving. It's not just a word. Well, he forgave our sins. What did he forgive for you? What was your mind darkened and calloused in, as we'll see in these next sets of verses? Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 6. The mindset on the, on the flesh is death. Paul does a tremendous job showing the difference between those who are still in their flesh and those who have the Spirit of God. This is what he's doing. There's a great difference here. And why I want you to look at it today is there was a time, brothers and sisters, you and I were still in our flesh. And Christ had to forgive us of all of that. So the mind set on the flesh is death, period. <laughs> That's where it leads. There's no hope. There's nothing else. If, you're, if you do not have the Spirit of God within you that you gain at salvation, your mind is set on death because it's part of the flesh. This is where you're going. Then he contrasts this, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. What a great contrast. Verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. I have taught this before, and I've had people actually come up afterwards who claim they're not even Christians, and they'll say, Pastor, that's not fair, because I, I don't really believe what you guys believe, but I'm not hostile to God. Like, you're kind of proving it now. <laughs> See, we relate moralism, right? Well, I'm moral. I pay my taxes. I, I'm nice. I do these things, and... And yet, left in your flesh, you're dead and rotting and being prepared for eternal judgment. 
So he says it's hostile towards God. Look at this. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, the teaching of God, the doctrine of God. It won't, it won't put up with that. The world is not going to put up with biblical marriage. <laughs> the world is not going to put up with biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. They're not going to put up with it. it will not, they will not subject themselves to it any longer. Notice, he goes on. For it is not even able to do so. This is what he saved you from. I love these verses because they just bring me to simple worship. Lord, I was just a dead man. I wasn't even able to come to you. Notice just the terminology, not subject, not even able to do so. Verse 8, for those who are in the flesh, look at this, cannot please God. You can do all the deep knee bends, give all the money you want, cross yourself, give, do anything you can imagine, and you will fall short of the glory of God. And yet the world is full of religions doing these things. And you and I were doing them, weren't we? We were going to church. We were doing our thing. And in the middle of that, some of us, in the middle of that, God opened our minds and we realized we weren't even saved. And that we were hostile hostile to God at that time. So when he says, look, your sins are forgiven, he's forgiven them from all this stuff. Let's go just a little farther. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians 2.14. I just want to show you just the terminology that the Bible uses here. Uh, Romans 8 was the man left in his flesh, the person in his flesh. Verse 14, this is the person, the natural person, meaning not the person with the Spirit of God, left in his natural, which is a fallen, uh, hostile towards God person. Verse 14, but the natural man, notice the phrase again here, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. When I meet with people sometimes and I'm trying to figure out if they're in the faith, well, some of the things you ask them are, they, do, do they see the things of God? So you start rehearsing some of the many things of God. What God loves, the things God loves, the things God hates. You work your way through that to see if they even accept those things. Because the Bible says here, the man... Um, the natural man, the natural person, the person left in his flesh does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And that's what we marveled. Remember last time, two weeks ago, we were in, in Mark 2. The man was not coming for forgiveness of sins. He was coming because he wanted something, right? Him and his friends, heal me. I want to walk again. And yet Jesus gave them both. Notice it says, for they are foolish, back in the middle of 14, the things of God it's referring to are foolish to him. And he can't understand them. And then it says this, because they're spiritually appraised. There is no spiritual value in their life. The word appraised, the Greek word particularly, means placing something of value there. It's not valuable. Christ isn't valuable to them. His church isn't valuable to them. The instruction of the word of God isn't val- valuable to them. It's, well, yeah, I go, maybe God will be happy with me or... He'll help me make money or something, right? Versus, I want to be in church. I want to be with the people of God. I want to be discipled. I want to be instructed. I desire the things of God. Yes, I have struggles that try to 
wrestle with that stuff at times. But what wins over because the Spirit of God is in me is a desire for the things of God. Now, I just kept thinking of these verses about the forgiven man. All of this was forgiven. One more. Ephesians chapter 4. You thought I was going to go to chapter 2, but that was a, that's an easy one. He was dead in his sins, wasn't he? But look at 4. Paul is reminding the believer of what it means to walk with Christ in a turning away from things. But he takes us back to what we used to be like. Verse 17, so I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles or pagans, the ethnos, also walked in the futility of their mind. The emptiness the lack of truth in their mind. We don't walk that way any longer. That's why we get discipled, right? We keep growing in Christ. We, we allow ourselves to be under the word of God, whether it's corporately in this setting or in a small group setting or even privately discipled because we need this because we used to be, have a mind that was just darkened. Look what the text says. They were darkened, being darkened in their understanding. It means they can't see anything, right? If it's dark, you can't see. This was what we were before. Excluded from the life of God. Oh, that phrase. I read that again this week. I thought, oh, Lord, the worst thing you could ever do to me was exclude me from you. That's what that kid got in Mark 2. He got a life with God because his sins were forgiven. It goes on just a little farther. It says, because of the ignorance that was in them because of the hardness of their heart. They're just not ignorant. Their hearts were hard. That's why they were ignorant. And then this phrase, verse 19. I remember reading this as a little boy because this is what little boys do. Having become callous. All right, men. How many of us took pins and stuck them through our skin on our elbows? Girls are going, what? Boys do this stuff. And we finally realize, hey, that doesn't hurt. <laughs> I can't feel anything there. This is the idea, when we are in sin, we have no feelings for God. There is no desire for Him. We're callous to His things, His loves, His desires. They mean nothing to us. We go to get something from Him if we can, but we do not desire what He desires. That's the state this young man was in when Jesus forgave him. And that was the state you were in when He forgave you. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Isn't that worth singing and worshiping and living a life for when you think about that? That that's what he brought us from? But let's go a little farther. Now we're saved. And we realize that Christ has forgiven us and he's brought us out of all of these things, this callousness and darkness and, and this fleshly thinking that leads to death. He's brought us all of that. But yet sin is still Still a battle of ours, isn't it? Sin still has ravaging effects on our lives and this life that we live and the world we live in. We have loved ones who pass away unexpectedly. Um, we, we, we go through cancers or, or some kind of illness that hits us that we did not expect. We're still struggling with these things, aren't we? Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Paul doubtlessly woke up and felt many afflicted injuries. For we know, verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. Anybody got that feeling? <laughs> Some of the tent pegs are not holding like they used to. <laughs> the tent's not, not as tight as it used to be. We have a building from God. A house not made with hands and eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan. Anybody groan? Who groaned this morning when you rolled out of bed? Oh, we groan, don't we? And some of you young people are going, I don't know what's wrong with these older people. You will groan in time. Everything gets worse, not better when it comes to the physical. Paul says, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. So we're wrestling. There's things happening to us. There's, there's sometimes diseases that hit us. We're, we're in this trapped in this. Sin has still a fact. It can't take us to hell. It can't judge us eternally any longer. But it still has an effect on us. And we groan over these things at times. Verse 3, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. He's talking about our, spirit, our, final, our final dress in Christ's righteousness, looking forward to that, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. We can't wait for the mortal to be swallowed up by the immortality. The more you love Christ, the older you get, the more you live your life for Him, the more you surrender things, the more you long to see Him. And when you see dear brothers and sisters, go to the Lord, go, go home to be with the Lord before you, as you get older, and I know young people, you, have to, you don't see this quite yet, you start to, in a way, be a little bit jealous of them. Because you know how sin affects. But look at verse 5. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God. And look at this who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. He's forgiven our sins. He's given us a Spirit to go through these very difficult times to trust Him. Even when we don't understand. Even when something happens to a loved one we can't get our mind around, the Spirit of God is saying to us, I have forgiven your sins. I have a home prepared for you. Press on. Get it, pick your bed up. Obey me. Go home. Live for me. And I will take care of the rest. Trust me. And that's the life we live in. Even our world, Romans 8, verse 22 and 23, says the whole creation is groaning and suffers under this birth pains right now. This sin that it's under. And yet, Paul says, after, after he goes through this massive list, list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 of all the things he goes through, he finally gets to 12 after he's being... Um, tormented by Satan in some way, says what? God's grace is sufficient for me. And so the power of sin is beat by the greatness of Christ. And that's what that man experienced in Mark chapter 2. Just one thought before I move to my second point. We're going to move through those a little faster, I hope. As soon as you give me a week off and I start thinking about all this stuff, and I go, wow, there's so much here. Um, 
not too long ago, I reread Corey Ten Boone's biology, biography. Wow, man. She watched her sister, horrible things done to her, and watched her die at the hands of the Nazis. At the end of her life, she's given her testimony at some church. And do you remember this? And up walks one of the men who did the things to her, her sister that ultimately called, caused her death. And she talks about in the, in the biography how she felt the restraint of her flesh not being able to pull that hand out, to shake his hand. She battled with that. But it was not for the forgiveness of Christ. She could not extend it. In the end, she extended it and grabbed this man's hand who was responsible for the death and the atrocities done to her sister that she loved so dearly. That's forgiveness. And so people say, well, I just can't forgive him. I said, well, I can show you a text that if you don't forgive, the Father doesn't forgive you, which is really proving you're never saved. Wouldn't that how we handled that? Isn't that the way the text teaches it? And, and you may be in here wrestling with this, and you go, man, you don't know what's been done to me. I don't. But I know Christ can forgive. And if he forgives you, you can be you can forgive anyone. Second thought. It's evil to reject Christ as God. Look at verse 6 and 7. Back in Mark chapter 2. But some of the scribes were sitting there. This is all after verse 5. And he says, your sins are forgiven, son. The scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man, verse 7, speak that way? He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What a statement there. Now, the house is crowded. Of course, these guys, because of who they are, everybody kind of parts the sea for them because they have made themselves out to be uh, right below God in some way. Uh, they're, they're the ones who grant forgiveness and all that kind of stuff. So they have made it in the house, notice. They're not out in the street. First of all, there's, there's an unrealistic view of themselves. But here they are, they're in here watching Jesus deal with this. And this paralytic, with the help of his three friends who had great faith in Christ, that this man could at least heal him, um, tear this roof apart, lower it down there, he says, without dealing with anything of his physical issues, deals with his heart and says, your sins are forgiven. And here's a scribe saying, this is blasphemy. This is blasphemy. Matthew passage records it this way. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, now listen to this, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? This is why I put, it is evil to reject Christ as God. It's evil to reject him as, as Christ being God. Look at uh, John chapter 1 with me real quick, just to reestablish this thought in our mind. This is again what takes place when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You come to know him as God. You know these verses, in the beginning was the word. The word is logos. It's an all-inclusive statement of the knowledge and superiority of Christ. He was the word. The word was with God. That means he stood in equality to God, face to face with God. And the word was God, meaning he shared completely everything, all essence and glory he shared with God. So he was God. So Jesus is God, according to John 1, 1. Now remember, they're rejecting him because he's doing things that only God can do. He was in the beginning with God. 
Now he's also creator, verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So everything we have, everything we see, everything we understand, the unseen, the invisible, visible, all came from Christ. In him was life, so we have no life without him. He's our life, and the life was in the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Now you can see it. Now he's in the room. The light's there. And people are marveling, but here's these religious leaders who have made, tried to make another path to God. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so they look at Jesus and they say, whoa, hold on. Nobody can forgive sins but God. Now, the scribe's premise here for God alone being able to forgive sins was correct, wasn't it? They just could not connect Jesus to it. We know that justification of a sinner is the prerogative that only belongs to God. Only God makes that decision. He forgives and he alone forgives. And only he can grant eternal pardon. And, and, and be, to be quite frank, every rebellious act against God is an offense that he must forgive. So all sin is a rebellion against God and, and an offense against God, so God must forgive that sin. No one else can forgive the sin for him. So the premise is right. They are saying only God can forgive sin. Now, because Christ claimed a level of authority that only belongs to God, the, 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 the scribes seen him as a blasphemer. Now, Jesus, being God, he looks into their hearts, doesn't he? And he calls this rejection evil in Matthew 9, 4. He calls that rejection of him evil. Now, the Jews believe three levels of, of blasphemy. And they get this kind of from a Le Leviticus 24. So first level of blasphemy was to speak evil of the law of God. So if you, if you spoke evil of the law of God, that was blasphemy. Number two was to speak evil of the person of God. So if you spoke in any way, used his name improperly, uh, spoke of his person uh, in any way, in a negative way, that was blasphemy. The third, being the worst, was this, was claimed that any human could be equal with God. That was ultimate blasphemal statement. But Jesus dealt with this his entire ministry. Just look at some of the things that he goes through. Just listen to these verses for the sake of time. John 5, 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. He just healed a man on the Sabbath. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath. Now listen to this. But it was also calling God his own father. Now this is where we understand the culture here. Making himself equal with God. So we're seeking to kill you because you're calling God your father. Thus, we understand the Son is equal with the Father. All that the Father has belongs to the Son, and all that the Son has belongs to the Father. So you're making yourself out to be a Son, so you are blaspheming. Because you're making yourself out equal with God. See, in our culture, we don't think of that. My son Colton's here somewhere. Um, we probably look at him and go, well, you're not your dad. He's from me. We just don't look at that in cultural-wise. I love him. He's He's got a lot of my traits, a lot of mom's traits and things like that. But in this culture, whatever the father had belonged to the son. Whatever the son had belonged to their father, they were equal. And so they related that to the father and they said, look, we're, we're seeking to kill you because you make yourself out to be the son of God, thus making yourself equal. A little later on, John chapter 10, verse 33, Jews answered him, 
Because Jesus said, well, they're about ready to stone him again, right? What, right? what good work are you going to stone me for? They respond this way. For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. See, that's the sovereign work of God in our lives, that when we get saved, it doesn't take us very long to go, oh my goodness, Jesus is God. <laughs> he has to be. There is no way my sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ if he's just a man. And you make that great connection by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, that Jesus is God. Unless you are darkened in your thinking. This went all the way to the cross, all the way to his murder and his crucifixion. Just before his death, they're speaking to Pilate. Pilate says, this man's innocent. The Jews speak out and answer, and we have a law, they're probably referring back to Leviticus 24, we have a law that, the, and our law is taught that he, that he ought to die because he's made himself out to be the son of God. So again, equality. So I, I, I love the way Jesus responds, and I like Matthew's recording of this. He says he sees the evil in their thoughts. And, and, and last thought, just on this point. All of the religions of the world reject Jesus as God. And it's one of the contentions that you have to deal with loved ones who are caught in Mormonism, Jehovahism, Jehovah Witness, um, whatever else. I mean, follow all the religions of the world. They all reject Jesus as God. And the only way that you are saved is that you understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself has forgiven you. The greatest reason why rejecting Christ as God is evil because you just put the death nail in your sentence. Because if it isn't Christ alone who is the Word, who was with God and is God, who forgives you, you're not forgiven. And there's no amount of giving, there's no amount of, of works, there's no amount of uh, whatever you want to bring that can save you if it is not Christ, the God-man, who forgives you. And so rejection of God as Christ is, your, is evil. And it is your death sentence. It's three, only Christ, excuse me, only God can handle omniscience. Look at verse 8 and 9. Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that, he, that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about th these things in your heart? That must have been quite revealing. Um, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Now, Jesus would not let this challenge go uh, out. What he, 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 was, he, was, he has the right to forgive sins. They're challenging him on this, and he's not going to let this go. He instantly detects their hostile reaction to their evil thoughts. And because their reactions were inaudible, think about that, it's down in their heart, no one's hearing this. Being God, he could in his own spirit know their thoughts. So Jesus counters their evil thoughts that didn't come out of them with his own question. And that's what he said in verse 8. Well, hmm, why are you reasoning in your hearts like this? You know, I mean, you could just see him. Did you say something? <laughs> you know, they're talking to each other. Okay, how did he know that? Hey, right now he's proving he's God. He's proving he has omniscience. He's proving to them in just verse 8. Let alone in verse 9 where he says, well, which is easier? You pick one, and, and let's see what, which is easier to do here. 
So this outward display of something only God could do. This is what only God can do. What am I do? Forgive sins? Only God can do that. Do you want me to heal this man and make him walk? Well, only God can do that too. <laughs> Which one do you want me to do? And so they, they may have expected some kind of humbo-jumbo word of healing out of him, right? There's still all kinds, of, all through society, there's always been people trying to distract away from God in the healing world. So maybe they were expecting that. Instead, they get this declaration of forgiveness reaching into the world of the divine. That's what they get out of this thing. And they're very, very much upset with him. And this prompted this evil objection. But I want you to think for a moment of just the omniscience of Christ here. Just, just for a moment. Not only does he share this attribute with God the Father, but also is the one that can only handle it. Look, look at Psalms 139, just quickly. I just want you to show you, because this is a good verse. We know this text. Can you imagine the power of omniscience in someone other than God? Listen to this. O Lord, David writes, you have searched me and know me. Well, he pretty much did that with the scribes right there, didn't he? <laughs> he knew exactly what was going on in their hearts. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Look at this. You understand my thoughts from afar. What are you thinking right now? God knows it. Christ knows it. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are acquainted, you're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, before, O oh Lord, you know it all. You know, no one has this gift but God. Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He does not have these characteristics. Only God has omniscience. It is an amazing thing. Could you entrust this with anyone? <laughs> Someone's going, I'd like to try. Oh, you would, ugh, you would be bad with it. I would be bad with it. Can you imagine knowing the thoughts of other people? Imagine the destruction that would come. Only the perfect one could have omniscience. Only the one who would never use it for evil, but only use it to bring about glory to God could be trusted with this. This is such a statement that Christ is God. It's amazing when you stop and think about it. Who else could have this? Everyone would use it for evil. Everyone would abuse it. Fourth, the illustration of authority to forgive sin. Verses 9 and 10. So finally, he goes and says, okay, look, which is easier to, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But, verse 10, here's where we're after, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what I want you to know. I don't want you to be caught up in my healings. I'm not the healer. I'm not here to heal. I'm here to ransom. I'm here to save. So that you'll know that I have the power to forgive, I'm going to heal this guy. And that's what he does. So he proposes a test that could verify his authority to meet the inner moral need of the man, right? And this would establish the fact that Jesus has the right to exercise divine forgiveness. Forgiving sins or healing the paralytic, 
both would take an amazing authority. And forgiving sins was what his goal was. And certainly the scribes could dismiss the statement forgiven of sins, right? Because that's an internal thing. They could say, well, anybody could say that. <laughs> right? You know? Hey, your sins are forgiven. Okay? <laughs> no, let's take a man that can't walk and heal him. And so the physical healing could be at once validated by a visible test of success or failure. And if the paralytic was able to take up his bed and walk, they have no argument with Jesus' ability to forgive sins. He's going to do the physical so they can understand the internal, the invisible. Fifth, the empowered example of the forgiven men. Verse 10 11, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And immediately, he got up and immediately picked up his pallet and went in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So Jesus says, so you'll know that I have Authority, he uses that word, it means power. Actually, uh, the Greek word has a really, it's a strong, strong tense to it. Has, he has the right, is what it means. He has the right to forgive sins. He has the right to heal people. That's what he's saying here. On earth, just as I do in heaven. And so he, what he does instead is he tells the paralytic, get up and walk. I mean, first of all, <laughs> He says, get up to this man. Now, notice the authoritative motivation that Jesus has. Like, get up. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine this young man? I, I don't, we don't, the Bible does not tell us how long he's been sick or, or ill or hurt or whatever. Did somebody drop a rock on him? I mean, was he born this way? We don't know. But I'll tell you, and anybody who's ever been in a cast for more than six weeks, you get out of that, it is about half the size of your other limb, isn't it? Atrophy, because we live in a fallen world, takes effect very, very quickly. Muscles deteriorate. Everything goes away. And, and, and some of you have gone through some difficult surgeries where you're down for a long time. And you remember the first time they told you, hey, we're going to get you up. I've had my share of surgeries. And you're like, whoa. You've got three guys hanging on you and you're trying to walk. Jesus says, get up. And I love this empowered example of a forgiven person. Jesus says, get up. And he does. Second, he says, not only do you get up, pick up your pallet, pick up your bed. That thing you tore the roof in to get down here, pick that thing up. Can you see a physical therapist working with you like this at the hospital? You're hell. You're better now. Roll that bed down the hall to somebody else that needs it. Insurance people are going nuts. So he says, pick up your bed. Jesus is demanding his prompt obedience as a definite act here. You're forgiven, man. Believe and obey. Isn't that what we do? That's what we should be doing, right? You're forgiven. Believe in God and obey him. Act like free men. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians, as he wrote to the Corinth church, act like free men. Free men obey and believe. That's what we do. And third, he says, go home. I love this one. I think Christ then orders him to go home, 
leaving him as a permanent reminder of his authority to forgive sins in the town of Capernaum. Remember the, the man that was living in the tombs of Gardena, and he had the legions of demons in, and he wanted to go with Jesus? What did he do with that guy? Sent him back to his hometown. And that's what he does with you and I, brothers and sisters. He forgives us of our sins and says, go live in breakaway trails. Go live in Hunter's Ridge. Go live on the beach side. I have a spot for you. You're healed. Go live there. Prove to those around you you've been forgiven. That's what he does. And he just sends the men back. (laughs) Go home. Go home. And you and I are witnesses of a forgiven life. And probably one of the greatest problems we have in Christianity is we walk out of this room and we forget we're forgiven. And our flesh takes over and our desires and our bills and our fears and our marriages and all those things all forget that we're forgiven at times. And we walk into wrestling that we don't have to walk into. Greatest gift you have, brothers and sisters, in this room is your sins are forgiven. What else can man do to you? There's nothing greater than that. Verse 12, he does all this. He, he walks out and look what happens. So that they all marvel. Notice the so that. This is the response clause, right? They all marvel. They're all amazed. And they're glorifying God. That's exactly what Christ wanted. Christ came to glorify his Father and everyone he's ever forgiven glorifies the Father. And the Father glorifies the Son when we're forgiven. That's what they do. And that's exactly what he was after. He's not there to be Mr. Healer. He wasn't there to slap people in foreheads and make scenes and drag people to himself. He was there to glorify his Father. And that's what we do. Our job is to glorify our Father at work, job, and play. That's what he's called us to do. And he does that, and I love that about him. And their response was, we've never seen anything like this. Of course you haven't. God's on earth. There's no prophet. There's, there's nobody else that's ever done anything like this. He's forgiven sins and having people who can't walk, walk. And finally, Christ came to preach. Look what he does in verse 13. We'll quit with this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him. And look what he did. And he was teaching them. You know, that was his main goal. Chapter 1, verse 38, said that he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to other towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Is that what, quote, Christianity wants today, preaching? Or do they want story hour? They want healings. They want health and wealth. Christ came to preach good news of the gospel. And that's what Riverbend's committed to do. We're here to preach. We're here to proclaim Christ. We're here to proclaim this is sufficient for everything in your life. Every issue, mental, physical, spiritual, this is enough. And that's what Jesus did. And along the way, he forgave your sins. And you love him for that. And you lay down your life to follow him for that, won't you? And there's days like this that we're reminded, and you and I got to say, Lord, I'm not living like a forgiven person. Will you forgive me? 
I know you forgave me the cross, but I come to you again. I have not been living like a forgiven person. Will you forgive me? If that's the case with you, as I close this, I'll just give you a few moments. Will you tell him that? Just tell him. Say, I'm not living like a forgiven person. If you are, by God's grace, right now walking with the Lord, thank him. Give him all the glory for it. And then I'll close in prayer. Take a few moments. Talk to the Lord. Father, thank you for sending your son to the earth. None of us would be here. None of us would have the desires to follow you that we have. He came to ransom us. He came to forgive our sins. Sometimes in your providence, God, you heal some, and sometimes you take some home. Sometimes you let us suffer from the effects of sin, but give us grace to get through it. But everything you do is perfect. And Lord, the thing that draws us to you the most is not that whether you're going to heal us or give us more money is that you forgave our sins. Because there's no amount of money in this world, there's no amount of health, there's no amount of nothing, Lord, that would even come to any degree of comparability to being forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. And Lord, we stand up at your command. We grab the things you ask us to do in this life and we go to where you sent us and live as forgiven people, Lord. So I pray this morning that you would help us, remind us, Lord, that we're forgiven and we obey you. And so when you tell us to get up and And pick up around us, Lord, and go live where you have us to live and live as forgiven people. May we obey you in that, Lord, because you're worthy of it. And we obey you not because we have to, but because we get to. We are not darkened any longer. We are not calloused in our thinking. We have not rejected you, Lord, because you opened our eyes and flooded our hearts with the truth. So we may we act as forgiven, free people and live in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you did, all that you did, all you suffered for us so that we could be forgiven. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.